This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I struck boldly and not as the papers say. I walked with a firm step through a thousand of his friends, was stopped, but pushed on. A colonel was at his side. I shouted, Sick Semper, before I fired, and I can never repent it, though we hated to kill. Our country owed all her troubles to him, and God simply made me the instrument of his punishment. On April 14, 1865, the same night that he'd murdered President Abraham Lincoln, an actor named John Wilkes Booth wrote the preceding passage in the margins of his appointment book, which he was using as a diary. Most people are familiar with the broad strokes of Lincoln's assassination in Ford's theater. However, the details surrounding Booth's motivation including the question of whether he was working alone or under government orders, remain murky to this day. During the Civil War, Booth led a double life as an actor and as an agent for the Confederate Secret Service. Booth's work as a Secret Service agent meant that he operated under the orders of the Confederate President, Jefferson Davis. Additionally, he was personally acquainted with Lincoln's Vice President, Andrew Johnson. Johnson benefited from Lincoln's death, becoming President of the United States. 
And in the immediate aftermath of Lincoln's shooting, the Secretary of State, Edwin Stanton, acted outside the bounds of his office in what may have been an attempted coup. Each of these three, Davis, Johnson, and Stanton, had motive to collaborate with Booth to have Lincoln killed. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. Ah, but sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. People often ask us how they can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. Today, we're talking about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. On April 14, 1865, he died of a gunshot wound to the head during a play at Ford's Theater. Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, was the leader of a small Secret Service group loyal to the Confederacy. His original mission was to kidnap President Lincoln, but today many debate what motivated him to kill the president. As far as we know, nobody with Booth's service or any other organization gave him the order to kill Lincoln. The official story, which we're exploring today, is that John Wilkes Booth decided on his own to kill Lincoln, an act of vengeance after the end of the Civil War. Conspiracy theorists think otherwise. The Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Union Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and Union Vice President Andrew Johnson have all been suggested as potential collaborators with Booth. We'll explore each of those people and the conspiracy theories associated with them next week. Conspiracy theories about Lincoln's assassination have a long history, dating back to the immediate aftermath of Lincoln's death. This kind of speculation isn't unusual, especially when it comes to the death of a United States president. Only four presidents have been successfully assassinated in U.S. history, and none of those assassinations was free of speculation in the immediate aftermath. These sorts of theories are so common, in fact, that an entire appendix of the Warren Commission, an investigation into the death of another president, John F. Kennedy, details the theories that tend to crop up around presidential assassination attempts. Generally, in the immediate aftermath of any assassination or attempted assassination, newspapers publish misinformation or outright speculation. Later, when the federal government releases a different official story, conspiracy theorists can point to the discrepancies between news reports and official statements as evidence of a conspiracy. The now-standard practice of fact-checking didn't become common among news organizations until the 1920s, meaning President John F. Kennedy was the only U.S. president to be assassinated in an era of journalistic fact-checking. 
On February 15, 1933, an anti-capitalist activist named Giuseppe Zangara tried and failed to shoot President Franklin Roosevelt at a rally. Conspiracy theorists and newspapers tried to link Zangara to the Chicago Mafia, in spite of a lack of evidence connecting them. The pattern continued after an attempt on President Truman's life in November 1950, when many speculated but failed to prove that his pair of attempted assassins worked under the orders of the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico. The assassins were members of the party, but officially they acted alone to raise awareness and sympathy for Puerto Rico's independence movement. And, of course, John F. Kennedy's assassination in 1963 remains a touchstone for conspiracy theorists. Today, theorists have tried to tie Kennedy's assassin Lee Harvey Oswald to Soviet Russia, the mafia, and the CIA. The official story is that Oswald acted alone. It makes sense that people would struggle to accept that someone as powerful as the President of the United States would die of something as mundane as a gunshot wound from an independent assassin. Especially in the case of Lincoln, the first president to ever be assassinated while in office. Booth's successful plot was unprecedented. But just because presidential assassination conspiracy theories are common doesn't mean some of them aren't true. Today, Abraham Lincoln is revered, widely regarded as the greatest United States president. But when he lived, he wasn't just unpopular. The public loathed him. He won his first term with less than 40% of the popular vote, giving him the lowest presidential victory in United States history. This was possible because four candidates appeared on the 1860 ballot. Even Northerners disliked Lincoln, feeling he'd gone too far with the Emancipation Proclamation. And Southerners used Lincoln's unpopularity to drum up support for their secessionist cause, promising their potential allies freedom from Lincoln's rule. Any politician in Lincoln's era would have struggled to appeal to a large voter base. Besides the North-South divide that led to the Civil War, The Democratic and Republican parties also fractured as the pro-slavery Democrats split into subgroups who supported or opposed secession, and the Republican Party expanded its platform to try to appeal to aisle-crossing Democrats. Even among Lincoln's fellow Republicans who shared his beliefs, he was seen as coarse and ignorant. Lincoln was born poor and lacked a formal education, which led many to see him as provincial and unprepared for the challenges of the presidency. When the South seceded early in Lincoln's first term, many placed the blame directly at his feet. When Lincoln was up for re-election in 1864, he knew he would have to change his campaign strategy, and he found a chance at re-election in his running mate, Andrew Johnson. Johnson only served as vice president during Lincoln's second term. For the first term, Lincoln served with Senator Hannibal Hamlin. But with shaky chances of re-election in 1864, Lincoln opted for a non-traditional choice for his running mate. Lincoln was an anti-slavery Republican. Johnson was a Democrat, a former slave owner and a senator from Tennessee, a Confederate state. While Johnson and Lincoln both believed in a unified United States and opposed the Southern secession, they disagreed on almost every other major issue. But why would two politicians who are so different from one another run on the same ticket? Well, 
it all comes down to politics. Traditional party lines broke down during the Civil War. The Democratic Party fractured between those who supported secession, known as Copperheads, and the War Democrats, who adhered to the Confederacy's ideals while opposing secession. Many War Democrats voted Republican in 1864. These party-crossing War Democrats were such a large voting bloc, the Republican Party temporarily renamed itself the National Union Party to appear more inclusive to voters who would ordinarily never vote Republican. The National Union Party represented pro-slavery and anti-slavery voters, people who directly benefited from the Southern plantation economy and those who vehemently opposed it. Lincoln needed to appeal to a broad base with often contradictory viewpoints. So it makes sense that Lincoln would choose a running mate who was basically the opposite of himself. While Lincoln's progressive views would appeal to traditional Republican voters, Johnson's Southern roots and pro-slavery leanings would bring in the War Democrat voters. This proved true during the 1864 Republican National Convention, when Johnson won more delegates than the incumbent Hamlin during the first rounds of voting. We don't know exactly when Lincoln decided to replace Hamlin on the ticket, but according to reports, Hamlin believed he would be nominated until Lincoln picked Andrew Johnson at the convention. This arrangement benefited Johnson as well. As a senator, he'd already gained some influence over Lincoln. Most notably, he campaigned and succeeded in exempting Tennessee from the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation, which ended legal slavery in the United States, was issued January 1, 1863. Slavery wouldn't become illegal in Tennessee until over two years later, in February 1865. If Johnson was able to accomplish this much as a senator, his influence as vice president would have been incredible. Not to mention that it conveniently positioned him as the next in the chain of succession when Lincoln died in office. Besides their political disagreements, Lincoln and Johnson developed a personal animosity soon after their term began. On Lincoln's inauguration day, Johnson overindulged and was publicly drunk. In Lincoln's opinion, Johnson hadn't only embarrassed himself, but also the presidency as a whole. During the four months they served together, Johnson and Lincoln's relationship cooled. By some reports, the two barely spoke to one another. Instead of increasing his influence, Johnson found himself ignored as vice president. Only Lincoln's death would vault Johnson into a position of power and prominence. Lincoln's unpopular presidency was marked by a series of assassination threats. Previous attempts on Lincoln's life included poison desserts delivered by mail from unknown and never identified sources, as well as a misguided attempt at germ warfare from a physician named Blackburn. Blackburn treated patients infected with yellow fever and planned to send Lincoln clothes worn by his patients in an attempt to infect the president. However, Blackburn's co-conspirator determined the plot to be too risky and never delivered the shirts to the White House. Even if Lincoln had received the clothes, he couldn't have contracted yellow fever from the shirts as this disease was spread via mosquito bite. In spite of the numerous attempts on Lincoln's life, his only source of personal protection was through private security guards. 
Today, presidents, their families, and other high-ranking government officials are protected by the Secret Service. The Secret Service was formed the same year Lincoln was assassinated, 1865, but the group's original purpose was to investigate counterfeiting and fiscal crimes. The possibility of dying early in office seemed to weigh heavily on Lincoln. President Lincoln may even have prophesied his own death. A little more than a week before his assassination, Lincoln told his former law partner, Ward Hill Lehman, that he dreamed that the public gathered to mourn a sudden and unexpected presidential death. Lehman never mentioned this supposed prophetic dream until decades after the assassination. And as this conversation took place privately between the two men, no one else has been able to confirm that Lincoln ever claimed to have foreseen his death. This very well could have been exaggeration or a complete fiction on Lehman's part. Premonition or not, Lincoln had good reason to fear an attack at the time. His assassination came only five days after General Lee's surrender at the Appomattox Courthouse, effectively ending the Civil War. Passions were high on both sides of the North-South Divide, and many in Lincoln's government had reason to vehemently disagree with his plans for Southern Reconstruction. Lincoln's administration was often just as divided as the country. A blend of Democrats and Republicans, Northerners and Southerners, Lincoln's appointments had helped him get elected by appealing to a broad swath of voters. But now, the vastly differing viewpoints within his government meant that finding a consensus was even more difficult than in a traditional administration. Some of Lincoln's officials, like his Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, saw slavery as a great evil and wanted to see the South punished for its treason. Others, like Vice President Andrew Johnson, who was from Tennessee, felt that the losses in the Civil War and the blow to the Southern economy the Emancipation Proclamation entailed were punishment enough. Johnson campaigned for a more benevolent form of Reconstruction. These deep divisions and dangerous times led to one of the most unbelievable assassinations in history. We'll explore the night of the assassination right after this. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
And now, back to the story. Lincoln invited General Ulysses S. Grant and Grant's wife Julia to join him and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, for a performance of a comedy called Our American Cousin. Grant was a national hero after the end of the Civil War. Lincoln wouldn't see an upsurge in his own popularity until after his death. But the celebratory mood after the war's conclusion left many patriotic Americans eager to see the victorious president and general in a public appearance. Their attendance at the play was well publicized by the local papers, and they both anticipated a large crowd at the theater. But the night of the play, General Grant and his wife canceled their plans. Today, we're not sure what spurred the Grants to skip the play, but it may have been due to Julia Grant and Mary Todd Lincoln's animosity toward one another. In lieu of the Grants, Mary Todd instead invited another military general, Henry Rathbone, and his fiancée, Clara Harris. At the time, Lincoln's Secretary of State, Edwin Stanton, was responsible for ensuring Lincoln's safety. Stanton had provided Lincoln with several different bodyguards in the past, and the night of April 14th assigned one of Lincoln's usuals, John Parker. Lincoln was unhappy with Parker's history of heavy drinking, and before visiting Ford's theater, he requested that Stanton assign a different bodyguard, another of his regulars, Sergeant Thomas Eckert. Stanton refused because Eckert was unavailable that evening, or so Stanton claimed. Still, Lincoln was in high spirits that day. The war was over, and he spent the evening socializing. According to reports, Lincoln didn't want to attend the theater that night, and when time came to leave for the show, he said, quote, I suppose it's time to go, though I would rather stay, end quote. The Grant's last-minute cancellation left Lincoln with an increased feeling of pressure to make the promised public appearance. He didn't want to disappoint the public any more than Grant's absence already would. Perhaps, if Grant had been present in Lincoln's box that evening, he could have prevented the assassination. But first, let's look at John Wilkes Booth's history and the factors that led him to become the first man to kill a president of the United States. John Wilkes Booth was an actor and a Confederate sympathizer. Toward the end of the Civil War, he became a secret agent for the Confederate Secret Service, a network of spies with ties to the secessionist government and Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Davis oversaw Secret Service activities and personally approved several missions, including Booth's to win the war for the Confederacy by kidnapping Abraham Lincoln and holding him hostage. To be clear, this is not a conspiracy theory, but a fact. Booth's work as a Confederate spy and his kidnapping plots against President Lincoln are well documented. When General Grant took over the Union Army, he ended the previously standard practice of prisoner exchanges. This was a massive blow to the Confederate Army, which lacked the numbers of the Northerners, and many in Confederate leadership felt they couldn't spare a single captured soldier. Confederate leaders believed that the Union Army and United States government would be willing to negotiate for their president's safe return should the Confederacy capture Lincoln. Davis assigned three separate secret agents to each attempt to kidnap Lincoln. One of those agents was Booth. 
While we don't know exactly when Booth became a secret agent, we know that in the summer of 1864, he'd almost entirely stopped acting in order to focus solely on his efforts for the Confederate cause. Booth was responsible for recruiting his own co-conspirators in the kidnapping plot. His earliest recruits included close friends and acquaintances. In December 1864, Booth recruited George Atzerodt, a man with demonstrated proficiency in navigating the Potomac River. His navigation skills would be necessary to transport the kidnapped Lincoln from Union territory into Virginia. Another key member of Booth's conspiracy was David Harold, a hunter who could serve as a guide through the rural countryside. Booth's last recruitment was Lewis Thornton Powell, a strong and healthy man who would be up to the task of wrestling and subduing a struggling President Lincoln. Booth ultimately had seven co-conspirators who met regularly in a tavern owned by Mary Surratt and operated by her oldest son, John Surratt. Booth's orders were to kidnap Abraham Lincoln, transport him into Confederate-held lands, and hold him hostage for ransom. The specifics, such as when and where to capture Lincoln and who would assist Booth in this kidnapping, were left to Booth's discretion. On March 17, 1865, just a month before the assassination, Booth and his co-conspirators learned that Lincoln planned to attend a play at the Campbell Military Hospital. Lincoln would travel with only his driver, leaving him exposed and unprotected while on the roads outside Washington, D.C. Booth's plan was simple. After the play concluded, Booth and his conspirators would intercept the president's carriage on its way back to the White House, overpower Lincoln and his driver, and then spirit them both away through southern Maryland and into Confederate states. On the night of the kidnapping attempt, one key part of the plan failed to materialize. Abraham Lincoln himself. He'd changed his plans at the last minute, choosing to attend a ceremony at the National Hotel instead. Another kidnapping plot involved the Ford's Theater, the same location where Booth would ultimately kill Lincoln. At one point, Booth and his conspirators explored lowering Lincoln from his private box onto the stage during a performance, but they ultimately deemed this plan too complicated and unrealistic. On April 9, 1865, General Lee of the Confederate Army surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse. With the war over, Booth and his conspirators lost all incentive to kidnap Lincoln. It was around this time that John Wilkes Booth made a new plan, and a conspiracy to kidnap became a conspiracy to murder. Officially, Booth wanted revenge on the man who had defeated the Confederacy. Booth famously hated Lincoln, even before the war, but had believed that the South would triumph. Given a few lines from his diary, such as on April 14th when he wrote, quote, Our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done, end quote, Booth may have also believed that Lincoln's death would inspire discouraged Confederate troops to resume fighting. That interpretation is just speculation, but the theory that Booth wanted vengeance is widely accepted. In addition to targeting Lincoln, Booth also plotted to assassinate two other key members of the Union government, Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William H. Seward. All three attacks would occur on the same night, 
executed before the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, or any other member of the government would know what was happening or stop the plot. While Booth would target Lincoln, two other conspirators would be tasked with the deaths of Johnson and Seward. On April 14th, shortly after 9.30 p.m., Booth arrived at the back door to Ford's theater. His friend Edmund Spangler was working backstage during that night's performance, and Booth asked him to watch his horse while he went inside. Lincoln's box was only accessible from the lobby, but Booth's planned escape route required him to have his horse ready and waiting at a backstage door. To reach the lobby, he had to exit the theater without Spangler noticing and re-enter through the front door all without drawing attention or interrupting the performance. Booth had performed in Ford's theater many times before and was familiar with the theater's layout. Although it took him nearly a half hour, Booth navigated a path through a trapdoor, under the stage, out a side door, down an alley, and finally re-entered the theater through its front door shortly after 10 p.m. His next step was to reach Lincoln, a task made easier by the fact that the president was unguarded. Lincoln's bodyguard, Parker, the same bodyguard Lincoln had tried and failed to have replaced, had left his posting around intermission to visit a tavern across the street for a drink. Around 10.30 p.m., Booth entered Lincoln's box and barred the door behind himself to prevent anyone from reaching Lincoln to assist him. Booth drew his gun and a bowie knife, then waited. He was familiar with the play that night, a comedy called Our American Cousin. On a major laugh line, when the audience's laughter was loud enough to drown out the sound of a gunshot, he shot Abraham Lincoln in the head. Lincoln's guest, Sergeant Rathbone, leapt into action and grappled with Booth. Ready with his knife, Booth stabbed Rathbone in the shoulder. Rathbone ultimately survived his injuries. The gunshot wound to the head didn't immediately kill Lincoln, but did leave him unconscious. Booth leapt out of Lincoln's box onto the stage. It was his only means of escape with the door barricaded. As he fell from the box, Booth's leg became tangled in one of the flags draped over Lincoln's box. He landed poorly, breaking his fibula, a bone in the back of his leg. Once on stage, Booth shouted, Sic Semper Tyrannis, which translates to, thus always to tyrants, the Virginia state motto. No longer concerned with secrecy, Booth ran directly from the stage to the back door, where his horse still waited. He mounted his horse and escaped the theater. On April 14, 1865, just after 10.30 p.m., President Abraham Lincoln was shot but not instantly killed. John Wilkes Booth's plot to murder Lincoln was intricate, so much so that in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, few realized the crisis they just witnessed. Mary Todd's screams alerted the other theater patrons that the violence was not part of the performance. Dr. Charles Leal was in the audience for the play and was the first to treat the president. That night, Leal wrote, quote, When I reached the president, he was in a state of general paralysis. His eyes were closed and he was in a profoundly comatose condition, while his breathing was intermittent and exceedingly stertorous. Two other doctors arrived shortly, and the three agreed that the president's injuries were fatal. 
They decided that a theater box was not a dignified place for a president to die. Lincoln was too injured to make a return trip to the White House, so instead, he was moved to a house across the street and laid in bed. Five more doctors arrived to treat the ailing president, including the Surgeon General Joseph Barnes and Lincoln's personal physician R.K. Stone. Lincoln remained unresponsive and in critical condition throughout the night. Lincoln succumbed to his injuries at 7.22 the following morning. Booth was successful in his plot to kill President Lincoln. But this was only one of three assassination plots he'd planned for that night. Let's discuss what happened in the assassination attempts against Secretary of State William Seward and Vice President Andrew Johnson. Lewis Powell, assigned to kill Seward, went to Seward's home at about 10 p.m. on April 14th, along with David Harold. Shortly before Booth shot Lincoln, Powell called on Seward. William Seward had been in a carriage accident a few days prior and was now recovering in bed with constant medical attention. Powell posed as a doctor, claiming that he'd arrived to deliver Seward's medication. Initially, Seward's servant, who answered the door, believed Powell, but he was under strict instructions to let no one inside the home. The servant offered to deliver the medication to Seward himself. Powell forced his way past the servant and made his way inside while Harold remained outside. Booth originally recruited Harold because of Harold's familiarity with the rural swamplands outside of Washington, D.C. And tonight, Harold planned to put his skills to use in guiding Powell out of the city and evading capture after his attack on Seward. The scuffle between Powell and Seward's servant drew the attention of Seward's son, Assistant Secretary of State Frederick Seward. When Frederick confronted Powell, Powell attempted to shoot Frederick, but his gun didn't discharge. Instead, Powell hit Frederick in the head with his gun. Another of Seward's sons, Augustus, approached Powell and Powell stabbed him. The sound of fighting and the screams of those Powell attacked spooked Harold, who abandoned his posting and fled. Inside, Powell's next obstacle was George Robinson, Seward's bodyguard. Powell stabbed him and then entered Seward's room. There, he stabbed Seward's daughter and nurse, who were both present in the room, before finally stabbing the Secretary of State and fleeing. On his way out of Seward's home, He stabbed yet another of Seward's sons, as well as a State Department messenger. Powell ultimately stabbed five people and left Frederick in a coma with a fractured skull after striking him in the head with his gun. Luckily, all of Powell's victims ultimately survived, including his target, William Seward. George Atzerodt, the man recruited for his experience crossing the Potomac, was responsible for assassinating Vice President Andrew Johnson. Atzerodt was no cold-blooded murderer, and on the night of the planned assassination, he visited the Kirkwood House bar for some liquid courage. Atzerodt spent the evening getting drunk. While at the bar, he asked the bartender, Michael Henry, about Johnson's whereabouts, but never followed up with any actual attempt on Johnson's life. Instead, he spent the night drunkenly wandering throughout Washington, D.C., and fled the city the next day. He never spoke to John Wilkes Booth again. 
In a confession after the assassination and Atzerod's arrest, he would claim that he still believed that the plan for that night was to kidnap, not kill, Abraham Lincoln. Maybe Booth decided to kill Lincoln on his own without informing his co-conspirators. More likely, Atzerodt lied in his confession to downplay his own complicity. After all, he was aware of his own orders to kill Vice President Johnson, and most likely knew of Powell's attempt on Secretary of State Seward as well. Of three plotted assassinations on the night of April 14th, only one was successful. Lincoln's murder by Booth's hands. But killing Lincoln was only part of Booth's plotting. Now he would have to evade capture as the first man to ever assassinate a U.S. president. After this break, we'll follow the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth. Now, back to the story. The evening of April 14th, once word got out that President Lincoln had been shot, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton took over the investigation of the assassination. He employed his own military troops to investigate and later apprehend Booth. Besides the investigation, that night Stanton also served as acting president, a position that he had no authority to hold. Stanton justified seizing the power on the grounds that Lincoln's assassination constituted a crisis, one that necessitated immediate and decisive action. He acted because he believed it was necessary for the stability of the United States as a whole. However, Stanton's willingness and readiness to take over so soon after Booth's attack suggested that he may have known about or even participated in the conspiracy against Lincoln. It certainly appears that Stanton sought to seize power for himself in the confusion surrounding a presidential assassination. However, this power grab may not have been out of character for Stanton. His life was marked with tragedy. When he was 13 years old, Stanton's father died, and he later lost his first wife and a baby in childbirth. In 1860, President Buchanan appointed Stanton to the position of Secretary of War, a position he held throughout the Lincoln administration. Like Vice President Andrew Johnson, Stanton was a devoted Democrat and had participated in numerous Democratic conventions prior to his appointment. Unlike Johnson, Stanton was deeply opposed to slavery and sought to punish the South thoroughly for their immorality, not only as slave owners, but as treasonous secessionists. Stanton proved to be a controversial figure, often overstepping the powers of his position. According to Stanton, the Civil War represented a crisis point in United States history, and his means were justified by the needs of national stability. He was known to be power-hungry, with a tendency to bend the law in order to suit his needs. In the aftermath of Lincoln's shooting on April 14th, Stanton ordered all roads in and out of Washington to be closed, but the order came too late, as Booth had already escaped to Port Tobacco, Maryland. Mere hours after Lincoln's assassination, Booth continued to a bridge on Soper's Hill, the point he and his conspirators had chosen to meet after their assassination attempts. Of all Booth's conspirators, only David Harold arrived. He and Powell had been separated after the failed attempt on Secretary of State Seward. After they met, 
Booth and Harold continued to marry Surratt's tavern to gather guns and ammunition. Well, meanwhile, the pain of Booth's broken leg proved to be an obstacle. In the immediate aftermath of Lincoln's murder, Booth operated under the power of adrenaline. Now, however, the pain became unbearable. Horseback riding was out of the question. Booth and Harold realized that he needed immediate medical attention and so sought the services of Dr. Samuel Mudd, who lived in Maryland. Booth and Harold longed to flee to the relative safety of the southern states, but as more time passed, Booth's injured legs swelled even more and travel became impossible. Ultimately, he spent five days recuperating at Mudd's home. Meanwhile, Stanton's investigation continued. He had identified John Wilkes Booth as the assassin mere hours after Booth shot Lincoln, and after searching Booth's rented rooms and questioning his known acquaintances, Stanton soon began to identify and arrest co-conspirators. Three days after Lincoln's death, Stanton's investigators arrested the first of Booth's conspirators, Edmund Spangler, who had watched Booth's horse outside Ford's theater. A few hours later, more conspirators were identified and arrested. By the end of the day on April 17th, investigators identified Powell as Seward's would-be assassin and found him at Mary Surratt's tavern. Both Lewis Powell and Mary Surratt were arrested. George Atzerodt wasn't arrested until April 19th. He'd raised suspicion by asking the bartender about the vice president's whereabouts on the night of the assassination, and searches of his rooms revealed his connection to Booth. He was the last of Booth's conspirators to be arrested, except for Booth and Harold, who are still recovering in Mudd's home. By this time, Booth was one of the most wanted men in the United States, and he couldn't risk traveling by day. On the night of the 20th, just six days after Lincoln's assassination, Booth still suffered from his broken leg, but was unwilling to wait any longer. He and Harold left Mudd's home. Booth's contact, Thomas Jones, ferried the pair across the Potomac River. Even in the formerly Confederate state of Virginia, however, Lincoln's killers weren't safe. Stanton's manhunt was growing closer with every day, and even with Southern allies, Booth and Harold couldn't escape justice. Once across the Potomac, Booth and Harold met a farmer named Richard H. Garrett. They lied, pretending to be injured Confederate soldiers, and Garrett allowed the two men to rest and recover in his home. When a tip reached Stanton that the assassin had crossed the Potomac, Stanton authorized a search party led by Colonel Conger to trail them into Virginia. Meanwhile, Garrett's oldest son, Jack Garrett, grew increasingly suspicious of the so-called injured soldiers staying in their home. Jack asked Booth and Harold to move out of his home and into the barn in order to protect his father, and the pair obliged. Conger's party now had multiple witnesses who were able to pinpoint Booth and Harold's location. On April 26, 1865, Conger met Jack Garrett, who led them straight to the barn where Booth was hiding. Conger's men surrounded the barn and demanded Booth surrender. Booth refused. Harold stood near enough to the barn's entrance that investigators were able to seize and arrest him. Booth, however, was too far inside to reach safely. Booth was armed, and investigators feared that following Booth into the barn would result in a dangerous firefight. Instead, they tried to negotiate with him to turn himself in. 
When Booth refused to surrender peacefully, his pursuers lit the barn on fire with Booth still inside. In spite of orders to take Booth alive, one of Conger's men, Boston Corbett, fired on Booth. He claimed that he'd shot Booth out of fear that Booth was going to attack a member of his own regiment. He would later say, quote, I waited till I was satisfied. His purpose was to use his arms to try and fight his way out of the door that Harold had just been taken out of. I then fired on him. It seemed to me that God had directed it, end quote. The wound would prove fatal, but not immediately. Investigators pulled Booth from the burning barn, but he was too injured for questioning. His last words were, quote, Tell my mother I die for my country, end quote. No one could ever ask him if he was working under orders when he killed Lincoln. The remainder of Booth's conspirators were arrested and tried. Four would be sentenced to prison. Dr. Samuel Mudd, who had treated Booth's broken leg, and Edmund Spangler, who had watched Booth's horse, along with two other conspirators, Samuel Arnold and Michael O'Laughlin, who had helped plot Lincoln's kidnapping. Another four were hanged in July, including David Harold, George Atzerodt, who had failed to kill Vice President Johnson, and Lewis Powell, who had attempted to murder Secretary of State Seward and injured many in his household. The government also hanged Mary Surratt, the first woman ever executed in United States history. Her crime had been hosting the meetings between Booth and his conspirators in her tavern. President Lincoln was a controversial figure when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but he transformed into a beloved martyr and American hero overnight. In death, Lincoln was far more popular than he'd ever been in life. If Booth's motivation, as some have speculated, was to inspire the South to rebel once more upon Lincoln's death, then his plan failed, utterly. In light of Lincoln's unpopularity prior to his death, we must ask if others besides Booth might have conspired to eliminate an incredibly powerful and widely distrusted leader. Factions in either the Confederate or Union governments may have allied with John Wilkes Booth in his assassination attempt. That brings us to our conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theory number one. Booth didn't act alone, but was working for the Confederate government, possibly even under the orders of their president, Jefferson Davis. So soon after the end of the Civil War, Confederate loyalists would have been desperate to resist a Lincoln-led government. Given Booth's ties to the Confederate Secret Services, this one's a possibility. Conspiracy theory number two. Secretary of War Stanton aided Booth in the assassination or in his escape as part of an attempted coup. Stanton's initial actions in the early hours after Booth shot Lincoln closing the roads out of D.C. and publicly calling for Booth's arrest were both too late to prevent Booth's escape. Stanton may have conspired with Booth, helping him escape and later ordering his troops to kill Booth before he could be questioned. Conspiracy theory number three. Vice President Andrew Johnson's lust for power, coupled with disagreements about governance style, led Johnson to eliminate Lincoln so that he could seize the presidency for himself. 
In theory, union leaders wanted Lincoln out of the way so that Andrew Johnson could take over. And finally, our wild card theory. Booth faked his own death and lived under an assumed identity for decades after Lincoln's death. President Lincoln left a lasting legacy on the U.S. In the words of President George W. Bush, Lincoln's voice was silenced. But he, more than any other American, has spoken to all the ages. And his words have haunted and driven our history. But is that history what we thought? Next week, we'll take another look. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admar and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.